There's a spot open in the chorus line. We're auditioning tomorrow morning. I think you should try out. I got an audition. Okay, ladies. I got one interest here, and that's the show. I don't care whether you live or die. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. I can't use you if you can't smile. I can't use you if you can't show. I can't use you if you can't sell. From the creators of Basic Instinct, the last time they took you to the edge, this time they're taking you all the way. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. You got more natural talent when you dance than anybody I've ever seen. She's going down to the stardust. She's gonna be in the show. Right? If someone gets in your way, step on them. It's not fair. It's not about fair. It's about power. You're a stripper. Don't you get it? I'm a dancer. She's dazzling. She's exciting. And she's what Las Vegas is all about. The passion is real. I could fall in love with you. The desire is intense. You can't touch me, but I can touch you. I'd really love to touch you. And the show is about to begin. Showgirls. Leave your inhibitions at the door. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. And we are continuing our voyage. Actually, it's coming to a close. Our voyage through the 1990s erotic thriller genre. Uh, we started with the antecedents in European cinema. We got to Basic Instinct, the ultimate expression in the U.S., which kicked off millions of video rentals. And now we're at the film that many believe killed the erotic thriller genre, Showgirls from 1995. <laughs> but before we get into that, I'll tell you guys what I have watched recently. I watched the film Finch, mm. which is on Apple TV Plus. It is a Tom Hanks film. It's this dystopian sci-fi thing, and it has a lot of elements that you've seen in other dystopian sci-fi, like, you know, 28 Days Later kind of thing. He builds a robot companion. He also has a dog. It reminded me a lot of a boy and his dog, a little bit of Castaway because it was Tom Hanks pretty much as the only human actor in the film, at least through most of it. There are little bit parts aside from him, but it's pretty much a one-man show. And then it reminded me quite a bit of Chappie, if you remember Chappie from a few years ago. It's kind of like a boy mm -hmm. and his dog crossed with Chappie. This film has had a terrible time. Its name has changed a bunch of times. They cut a ton of stuff out of it. Making a dystopian future film right before we entered a pandemic and had a dystopian reality <laughs> meant that they had to make major cuts to it. And then it also affected its distribution where it kept 
getting pushed off and pushed off. I think it was actually a 2018, 2019 film, and it didn't get released until 2021 when they sold it to Apple. So as such, it probably swam under the radar for a lot of people. I highly recommend checking it out. I thought it was excellent. Even though everything in it is something you've seen before in another movie, just the way it all comes together, I found it very affecting. It was really powerful. So I'm finally caught up on The Handmaid's Tale. It's only taken me years now. Um, <laughs> gosh, man, just I, I just don't even I, I don't even have words to express how much I love that show and, and how important it is to watch the show, especially if you're a big believer in women's rights like I am. I kind of like to call The Handmaid's Tale Mike Pence's with dream. It's been interesting to see the take on Margaret Atwood's book and what they've done with with it. The actors are amazing. The show is phenomenal. I can't express enough how everybody should watch his, watch the show or at least give it a shot. It's hard to watch. There's a lot of hard things to stomach because you can really see how America's puritanistic tendencies still shine through today and how it could be twisted in the most messed up way if we had something like jihad here you know the christian puritan version of jihad here to take over the government and oppress everybody and put them in their nice neat little boxes so i've read atwood's book and i saw the original film version of it but my question is, this is like an entire series and it's lasted multiple seasons. So is this still of Fred's story or is this like another other characters? No, it's still it's still Alfred's story. I prefer to call her June Osborne because that was her name before she was basically kidnapped and forced into sexual servitude. And that's who she continues to be throughout the series, even though she does end up having other commanders. Her name is June. They have season five and six coming up, so I can't wait to see what happens next. So just to tag onto your question, Eric, about like, where's the source material coming from? There is a sequel book that came out a couple years mm -hmm. ago, and a lot of what's in these later seasons, it's not a one-to-one -one adaptation of the sequel book, but it's still part of Atwood's vision of how the rest of the story unfolds. It's called The Testaments. That's why I, I was like, oh, it's the book of so-and-so. No, it's it's called The Testaments, and it's, it's great. My son and I have now gotten all of the expansion packs for Unstable Unicorns, which, if you're a movie buff, it's a really fun game. A lot of the cards have references to not only specific films like The Shining, but also just general movie flavors. Uh, one of the recent expansion packs we got is a nightmare expansion pack. And so all the cards are horror tropes. So um, some of the basic unicorns are like the cheerleader unicorn and the jock unicorn and the security guard unicorn, the kind of uh, red shirts that get killed off in horror films. So there's just a lot of fun flavor if you like movies. If you're looking for a game that is like Magic the Gathering Light, <laughs> this this is a good, 
you know, 20 minute version of Magic the Gathering that you can teach somebody in five minutes. It's one of those games where you get to draw, you get to play, and then your turn is over. So it's it's great in terms of easy to learn mechanics. Uh, the flavor is wonderful. Good for the whole family. Highly recommend Unstable Unicorns. It sounds like Exploding Kittens, Unstable Unicorns. <laughs> same same company and uh it's not as irreverent or weird as exploding kittens but uh more movie flavor but if it's more movie flavor this sounds like maybe we should play a game on the show or maybe we could do it as an after hours event after our live show yes yeah <laughs> there you it's, go it's fun gc8 so after in- hours I hear the saxophone music playing. No, we can't start the saxophone this early. We've had that's the one complaint I have about all of these basic instinct ripoffs is how much bad saxophone music I've had to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) So it's unbearable. Can we just enter the buff guy? from um hold on wait a minute what is it what's the movie what's the vampire movie Kiefer sutherland is in the movie oh lost boys yeah can we just enter in the saxophone player from the lost boys for every saxophone scene we've had to watch in every movie in the series because (laughs) it would have just beefed up the movie pun totally intended just saying okay how do you tie how do you tie lost boys to gary oldman um Everyone! I mean, Gary Oldman also plays Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula, so we've got like vampire parallels, but yep. Lost Boys. Um that's Kiefer Sutherland and who else is in that film? Um Corey Haim and Corey Feldman are in the film. Yeah. Um, oh, there's a road that leads nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so sure about that. I mean, Corey Feldman is friends with was friends with Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson is connected to everybody somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's not go this way. This leads us to places we do not want to go. Yeah. Well, I think we have. To, we're gonna get there with Showgirls anyway. We just don't want to get there quite yet. Showgirls wasn't really a place I wanted to go again, but here we are. <laughs> Hey, the public demands showgirls. <laughs> All right, so let's get a background to 1995. Let's talk about the music that year. Depending on who you ask and which chart you're paying attention to, because there are different charts for different genres, the biggest song of the year was either Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise or Los Del Rio's Macarena. Oh. <laughs> I'll go with Coolio. Yeah, me too. Let's set the stage. Ride, ride, cool ride. Whatever I do, I do to survive. There you go. Done. Scene. <laughs> <laughs> Last episode, I told you that Amazon was founded in 94. In 1995, Amazon sells its first book. The book was Douglas Hofstadter's Fluid Concepts and Creative Analogies, Computer Models of the Fundamental Mechanisms of Thought. Sounds like a bestseller. I know. Also, eBay was launched. 
I have no idea, but I think maybe its first sale was a used copy of Douglas Hofstetter's Fluid <laughs> Concepts and Creative Analogies, Computer Models of the Fundamental Mecha Mechanisms of Thought. <laughs> Somebody's like, man, fuck this book. I'm selling it on eBay. <laughs> so if you had told me that that was the title of a book, I would have thought that's something that a robot AI author had written today. Um, now that apparently that's one of the things that that robots can do is that they can write books um but okay first book on amazon <laughs> yeah somebody made a watch hours of star trek and star wars and had them write a book about computers <laughs> in gaming news inexplicably pogs were the big trend so this milk cap trading game sort of gambling throwback to the great depression we don't even have milk caps on milk jugs anymore didn't even in the 90s you know how this became a thing to this day i have no idea but i just remember attending a gaming convention in 95 and it was everywhere like there were pickup games of pogs happening snoop poggy pog was the champion there <laughs> that was what was going on in gaming in food Starbucks debuted the Frappuccino. In movie news, Toy Story, the first computer animated film, comes out. And at the Oscars that year, Braveheart won Best Picture. Anyone care to guess the top TV show of 1995? I worked second shift that year. I don't know what was popular on TV. Probably Friends. Was Seinfeld around yet? Seinfeld was officially number two. Number one was uh, number three was Friends and number one was ER. But really, the top TV show was the O.J. Simpson trial with more than 150 <laughs> million people tuning in to see the final verdict. January 1st, Austria, Finland and Sweden joined the EU. March 20th, there is a sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway. Members of the Om Shinrikyo religious cult released sarin gas on five subway trains in Tokyo, killing 13, injuring 5,510 people. And then 11 of the principal activists were hanged in 2018. The reason for the attack remains a mystery to this day. April 19th, the Oklahoma City bombing occurs. 168 people, including eight federal marshals and 19 children, are killed at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. 68 are wounded by a bomb set off by Timothy McVeigh and his accomplice, Terry Nichols. August 24th, Windows 95 is released. In the fall of 1995, Martin Scorsese released Casino about the dark side of Las Vegas. And also in the fall of 95, Mike Figgis released the film Leaving Las Vegas about the dark side of Las Vegas. <laughs> and then we saw the dark side of Las Vegas for real because there was Showgirls. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> so, yep, Showgirls. This was the first and only NC-17 movie to get wide theatrical release in the U.S., and that still stands. It had a $45 million budget, and even though theatrical returns were lacking, it was a huge winner on home video. That's the trend we're seeing with all of these basic instinct knockoffs, is the victory of home video. 
<laughs> so it garnered a hundred million dollars in video rentals, ultimately not a flop there. And it became a cult hit, frequently cited as one of the first films ever made. I'm sure we will discuss at length whether it deserves to be a cult classic or not. There was serious hype about the sex and nudity in the film even before its release. And screenwriter Esther Haas complained about this marketing ploy because he really wanted to make a serious film that was commenting on the abuse and pressure for sex, rape, drugs, all of the problems that the strippers and showgirls in Vegas were facing from all sides. And so the marketing campaign of this was going to be the hottest, sexiest film, The Next Basic Instinct, he actually took issue with. He wrote the idea down for the film, this $2 million idea, on the back of a napkin, and um, then called up his buddy Verhoeven saying, hey, I want you to direct this film. Verhoeven was not interested, but he decided to do it as a favor since the two of them had had some success with Basic Instinct. So, you know, since since they were friends, Verhoeven agreed. And it was an unqualified disaster in so many ways. Joe Asterhaus, the screenwriter, would later admit that he wrote Showgirls during the most turbulent part of his life. So that might explain why so much of it is so intense. <laughs> but a lot of people think that the failure is not really because of the script necessarily. It's not because of Verhoeven. The two of them really did their homework. They interviewed over 200 Las Vegas strippers and incorporated parts of their interviews into the screenplay to the point that there were really only three ad-libbed lines in the whole film. Otherwise, it's mostly verbatim from these interview transcripts. So it's a well-researched film. We'll talk about whether it's a satire or not, but a lot of the failure is tied to the performances, namely that of the leading lady, Elizabeth Berkeley, who took the role of Nomi, fresh off of Saved by the Bell, which is a show I haven't thought about in, uh, I don't know, ever. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I never liked that show. Anyway, no, I didn't. I, yeah. Um, you know, and just to think there were there were a lot of other actresses who were considered for this lead role. Pamela Anderson and Denise Richards, for instance. They might have been more of the same. But uh, we also almost had Charlize Theron. She signed on for the role, but then after reading the script, turned it down. Angelina Jolie and Drew Barrymore were also considered, and they might have been an improvement. But we got Elizabeth Berkley, who got a well, <laughs> well-deserved Razzie for this. One of the other records that Showgirls holds is most Razzie nominations at 13, mm -hmm. and it won eight, including Worst Picture, Worst Screenplay, Worst Actress, and Worst Director, an award which Verhoeven gamely <laughs> came to accept in person. So... Good for him. <laughs> Only other note is that the film's stark poster, which is actually one of the most striking and memorable things about the film, in my opinion, was adapted from a famous photograph by Tano Stano from a book called The Body, Photographs of the Human Form. And I highly recommend looking this up because the artist's work is pretty fantastic. The rights to show the film on television were eventually purchased by VH1, but because of the amount of nudity in the film, they had to create a censored version where they digitally rendered black bras and panties onto all the dancers to hide the exposed breasts <laughs> and genitals. 
And there were several shots, of course, that were removed entirely, shortening the film by 45 minutes. <laughs> so, and if you happen to catch this VH1 version of the film, you'll also notice that there are some lines that were redubbed by an actress other than Elizabeth Berkley because MGM refused to pay her the $250 fee that she asked for to redub her lines. So just thinking about some of the themes of the film about female performers not being properly compensated and boy, you see that backstage here as well. Uh, last but not least, We'll just say um, The Guardian commented in 2020, with Showgirls, the target was the American dream itself and the dishonest stars born narratives turned out to sustain it. And I hope we get a chance to dig into this interpretation of the film, that it is a satire, a very dark comic satire about the American dream rather than merely an exploitation film. Let the debating begin. It has Elizabeth Berkley, who is the queen of overacting. <laughs> but it also has Gina Gershon, who is awesome she every time great. I see her. She yeah. is. She's always good. And then, of course, it has Kyle McLaughlin. I was going to wait to get to Kyle McLaughlin later, but sure, we can go there now. <laughs> the man who Rolling Stone called... The boy next door, if that boy spent lots of time in the basement. Well, that was me. That was me. So, like, I I appreciated that Rolling Stone review of Kyle McLaughlin in general, because I I don't know if that was in reference to this movie in particular, but it they definitely called him that. Anyway. All right. Now to dive into it from the opening hitchhiking scene. We know we're in for a cheesy flick here. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Yeah. This movie has a certain reputation. Uh, they tr I figured they were trying to call it like that whole comment on the American dream is like spin afterwards. I also think they tried to spin it as, oh, like Rocky Horror will make this a cult classic and claim that it's like a cult classic. But maybe it kind of is. I don't I don't know if that was legit or marketing. It was considered the worst film, not of 1995, but of the entire 90s, the worst major studio release. <laughs> yes, it won that Razzie as well. <laughs> Wait a minute, didn't Twister come out in the 90s? Because yes, it did. That's the worst movie of the 90s to me. I got to say that this film was nowhere near as bad as I was led to believe going in. That said... It is definitely bad. <laughs> it's it's bad, but it's it's upsetting and bad. It's not just it's not like the room bad. Like the yeah. room is just like everything about it is bad. And and in that so bad it's good. I don't think Showgirls gets to be so bad it's good. It's it's in this like sad limbo area. It has yeah. some moments that are definitely so bad it's good. And that hitchhiking scene where, like, this guy picks her up and she pulls a switchblade on him. <laughs> that was so convincing. Check off switchblade. That's <laughs> yeah. We'll get back to that at the end. <laughs> and don't forget the Bon Jovi biker jacket that she was wearing. I mean, that was totally, that was straight out of a Bon Jovi video from back in the day. And she was rocking that with the fringe. I don't know if it's because she comes from the world of television, but she delivers her lines at 11. Like, all her <laughs> lines are delivered at maximum volume in your face. I'm like, yeah. whoa, whoa, you're on a giant movie screen. 
Tone it down, Liz. Tone it down. <laughs> yeah, calm yourself down. Speaking of toning things down, can we get a drink? Rosie, do you have a drink for us? I oh, do yeah. have a drink, and it is a cocktail. Thank God. <laughs> Let's go to yeah, the Hell lobby. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think we, we need, need a drink. <laughs> right now. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. There's a whole lot of champagne drinking going on in the movie. So, why not have a champagne cocktail? So, to serve a traditional champagne cocktail, um, I did a little digging. It's served in a flute glass, duh, of course, like champagne should be. What you need is one sugar cube, three dashes of Angostura aromatic bitters, one ounce of Remy Martin 1738 cognac, three and a third ounces of brute champagne. Now, what you do is you coat the sugar cube with the bitters and drop it into the glass, pour chilled cognac over the soaked cube, and then top it with champagne, and you can garnish it with a zest twist. When you drink it, it starts out bone dry, then it gets slightly sweeter as you reach the dissolving sugar cube at the bottom of the drink. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. So, you know, the movie starts out dry. <laughs> some of the scenes get a little bit sweeter but not much better it's a great comparison drink to the film <laughs> okay excellent choice nicely done thank you do we want to say any more about elizabeth berkeley trying to be a badass it just wasn't convincing in her hairstyle throughout the movie when she wasn't on stage i feel like i feel like they could have done something different and i know that this just sounds petty but you know this is costuming this is movies this is Hair and makeup. I worked in hair. That was not the hairstyle of a badass. Pinned up into a basically like French twist. Mm. No, I, I don't know. That's that was a badassy enough for me. I feel like it kind of reminded me of when we were punk rockers, there'd be someone that would come around every so often that was like, you know, a hair metal person or whatever. And like trying to act like a badass. That's what it reminded yeah. me of. You know, yeah, yeah <laughs> like, or like. The punk rock girls that show up, but they're still wearing mom jeans. Well, I mean, the lip gloss like every... was what really yeah. like, I'm like, wow, yeah. the, her lip gloss was shinier than the knife. I'm like, that's Whoa. right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I don't. Yeah, that, that I mean, I, I knew I, I knew some uh, some guys from the clubs back in the day that had shinier lip gloss than her. But yeah, Verhoeven has this great ability to pick his leads he like nails it with like if you think about the fourth man the the femme fatale and stuff like that what happened here how did he choose her of all the people he could have chosen for this role this is where i want to begin this like is it possible they planned it as a satire from the beginning and that it's a satire with missteps rather than a serious film with missteps and the idea of casting Elizabeth Berkley is one of these, like, if I were directing a satire of this concept, she is the right choice because she she has this weird Pollyanna-ness about her, but then 
like is trying to be all tough and you know trying to get ahead but that you know in the heart of it she's kind of wrapped up in this American dream idea or she she is our image of what a blonde up-and-coming starlet is supposed to be but then the fact that she turns out to be this psycho you know is supposed to be a surprise for us but then also kind of badly done in in a satirical way that if if he's making a serious film i agree with you the choice of elizabeth berkeley makes no sense at all okay i want to say this now because i don't want my words to come back and haunt me later on because there is a film that paul verhoeven made that i consider badly misunderstood a satire that people took seriously that is not this film we will get to that film in a future episode. Well, we are going to have to talk about Starship Troopers, though. Damn it! You blew it! How did you know I was talking about Starship Troopers? <laughs> well, because I feel like they have the same thing in common of it's it's a film that is such a subtle, if it's a satire, and I think Starship Troopers definitely is. The question is whether this film is trying to achieve the same subtlety that Starship Trooper has it's to the point that if you are not paying attention and you are not on the right side of the issues presented in this film, you will get the exact wrong message the <laughs> same way you do in Starship Troopers. If you are not not a liberal going into the film, you could walk away saying, you know, like, up with fascism. <laughs> so, <laughs> First of all, when has the word subtle ever been associated with showgirls? I'm just, I can't even believe we're having this discussion. Like, the, the most unsubtle film ever made. I feel like during that period of time, everybody had to have their own version of that movie that they did. And I feel like Elizabeth was wrapped up in that and it freaking stomped her career. That's what it looked like to me. That's how it felt when it first came out. That's how it felt when I watched it this time. Like, this is her version of Basic Instinct because everybody had their own fucking version back then and it got really annoying. And I feel like this was the nail in the coffin on that genre for a while because this movie was so bad. You know, you couldn't take it seriously and you really couldn't even take it like a satire because it didn't feel like it was intended to be a satire even though it looked like a satire, walk like a satire, and talk like a satire, it didn't seem like that was the underlying intention. Like, this was supposed to be a story that was told about this showgirl and what she went through, but instead it was just, hi, here's another version of Basic Instinct for you to digest and vomit over. I think that the film doesn't quite work as a satire because I think of it compared to other films like this and see it more on a continuum than as a digression from it. So thinking about All About Eve as a classic version of this, like established star versus young starlet who is ruthless and willing to do anything. And the dynamics around shame and sexuality and using sex to get ahead in the industry and kind of the darker side of the personality of the innocent dreamer who actually is a snake the whole time like all about eve does this so well and i feel like showgirls is trying to do the same thing that all about eve does but badly and then thinking about kind of the next one in the progression black swan black swan also a very similar kind of all about eve storyline but with a lot more darkness and 
talking about mental health and a little bit of lesbian tension thrown in that is maybe implied in All About Eve, but not on the surface in the way Black Swan is. And Aronofsky's Black Swan takes some of the same things that's going on in Showgirls, but does it extraordinarily well. And it's intense. It's suspenseful. You don't know what she's capable of. The dancing is amazing. All of the things that Showgirls is not. (laughs) (laughs) That's really much like what our show could have been. We could have done All About Eve, Showgirls, and Black Swan. That's very much a Geek Channel 8-like arc right there. This is a film that is extremely popular with the LGBTQ community. I'm not sure why. I have my ideas. Go ahead. Why do you think? Just because this was one of the few mainstream films where they where they showed a woman kissing another woman. Where they had gay men as part of the cast. Not necessarily as main characters, mind you, but they were there. Like they had that one scene where he was like, uh, he said to the one girl, you're just jealous because your partner is straight or whatever. That was more conversation in the mainstream in a mainstream film. So I could see where this movie would be popular amongst the LGBTQ community because it was it was a step towards normalizing their love and their relationships and their lives and their culture. Okay, I'll buy that. I do definitely want to touch on the weird-ass relationship between Crystal and Nomi. Yes. Because I just can't even make sense of any of it. Before we get to that, we have to explore a little bit about her relationship with this wardrobe person that takes her in. Right after she gets to Vegas, all her luggage is stolen by the guy who gave her a ride. And then she runs out in the street and she is sort of rescued by what was the character's name? Um, Molly, Molly, or you're talking about Molly, the roommate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Gina Rivera. Molly Abrams played by Gina Rivera. Yeah. This seems a little bit weird because she's not like one of the showgirls yet or anything like that. So. Molly just takes her in, like, off the street. Oh, you can come live with me in my trailer. I think people in Vegas are probably a little too jaded to take in every waif off the street, you know? Doesn't that seem like (laughs) that would not happen? (laughs) A lot of unrealistic things happened in that film, and that's definitely one of them. I have to say, I did like the transition, though. Six weeks later, that they're best of friends and arguing over who ate the potato chips... I actually liked that scene, even though I agree with you. The premise of her taking her in in the first place is a little suspect, but it felt like a nice moment to just show two women being friends, both have names, and they're talking about something other than guys for for a minute. They're you know they're talking yeah. about their careers. They're ta- you know about like oh I made this dress and look at my nails and like yeah a lot of it's very girly stuff, but at least it's showing that they have a friendship and a dynamic that doesn't necessarily put men in the center so it passes the bechdel test yeah (laughs) wow showgirls passes showgirls passes the bechdel test all right um but i will say it would have worked better for me if they had just cut from her stuff being stolen and then left out their meeting and then six weeks later they're they're living together 
didn't need to be explained. Like somehow she found a roommate. That would have mm-hmm. worked better for me. Yeah, I, I thought the scene where they met each other was problematic. Like Hugh just goes nuts and decides to run out into the street because they're mad. Like what what kind of temper tantrum is that? It's not rational. Well, her uh, if we break down every time she does something that doesn't make sense, we will be here for hours. <laughs> so, this is true. This is true. <laughs> we can't do that. But what I do want to say is then like shortly after that, she meets the male love interest for like a little bit for like a heartbeat for, you know, maybe the first half of the film or whatever at yet another terrible club scene. <laughs> terrible club scene and she's supposed to be like a dancer and she's dancing the worst like the worst dance scene like you thought the dance off was bad in basic instinct yeah this dance off was yeah (laughs) where she meets this guy is just so bad she's in this red fringe dress and heels and she's like like do you remember the dance that um uh what was her name from seinfeld Elaine. 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 That is exactly the dance that, that Elizabeth Berkeley's character is doing in this club scene. I defy you. Watch them side by side. You will be like, that's the same dance. <laughs> I have to say, though, they, they have to set the bar there of like the dancing has to be so terrible in that club scene because her improvements by the time she gets to be a star are are very subtle. Again, we're gonna I'm gonna find ways to keep talking about the subtle subtleties of showgirls. And one of them is the improvement that Elizabeth Berkeley makes as a dancer throughout the film. What kills me is her dancing was so bad in that scene and this guy was like a dance instructor and he's like, look, you have talent. I'm gonna train you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he was just trying to get in her pants, right? We we know that. Well that too. So this is the character of James that he was one of the high points of the film. His acting was great. I found him to be sympathetic. Like, he's the sort of person I, you know, I'm like, you're, he's the best thing that's ever going to happen to you. Just, just don't, don't fuck that up. And, um, and so I, I was very surprised by, um, just, he was like a shiny beacon. He's a total player. You found him as the most sympathetic. Yeah. Well, I mean, other than Molly, of course. No, I found James to be like, you know, just a regular guy and he admits at some point like yeah i've got a problem you know i sleep around and i'm sorry about that but he's (laughs) he seems to be a relatively nice person who values his interactions with her and really does seem to be at moments genuinely encouraging her to leave the showgirl scene behind and i think in the beginning we see that as him just trying to butter her up but by the time we get to the end, we're like, no, actually, maybe he knows something about what happens to these girls. And he really does have her best interests at heart. Well, I think that one of the things that this film gets right about sort of the Vegas scene is, in my opinion, and I never lived in Vegas, so I can't say for sure, but like seems to be from what I heard and stuff like that is the front people put up the walls versus what's behind the walls. And I think a lot in particular of her friend and the manager of the strip club she's working in in the beginning, 
you know, the, the manager's like such an asshole and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, tries to come on to her, all sorts of things and like tells her to get out of here and you'll be back in six months or whatever, you know, like when she leaves the club to go. But then they visit her later on and you can tell they actually like her and they're like, you did good, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, there is that little bit of humanity in some of these characters that shows through in little parts. Yeah, I agree. Um, sorry, go ahead, Rosie. I just wanted to say that Lynn Tucci, who played Henrietta uh, in the movie, she did add a nice touch to the film. I wanted to give her some credit because I, I'm a huge fan of Orange is the New Black. She's in that series and did a great job in the series as well. So I wanted to give her some props because she was funny. She was genuine. She was definitely her. And I just loved her character in that movie. What little bit part she had. She really added a little sprinkle onto the icing. Do we want to talk about any of her strip scenes? Uh, can, if we want to talk in generalities, just, um... I don't mean we break them down move by move. <laughs> <laughs> I would love, it would be awesome if we had an actual exotic dancer on the show to, like, do that. But I'm not qualified to do that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm talking generalities, yeah. Well, I guess what I would say is Crystal Connors... They describe in the beginning that she is dazzling, exciting, and very, very sexy. And she doesn't do a lot. It's a lot of posing. But she does have the poise and the everybody-look-at-me kind of energy without needing to be like, everybody look at me with the arms waving. And I feel like there was not a single moment in any of Nomi's dancing in any of her stripping, nothing she did in which I found her sexy. It was always very painful to watch and just <laughs> like spasmodic and, and just like, like it was like watching somebody who has rabies trying to do a strip tease. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this brings up the point of if Elizabeth Berkeley wasn't cast for her acting talents, and she wasn't cast for her dancing talents or her, you know, stripping. Why was she cast again? I mean, she has a good body. I'll give her that much. You know, she has a really good pretty. body. She's pretty. She's and... pretty. Yes. She's, she's got a good pouty face, which this yeah. character needs. Like a, hmm. Yeah. Here's my theory about her. We've seen this with a lot of Disney stars. We see it with her, which is, Someone coming out of a kid's medium, you know, she had only been known for making this kid's show. And she's like, I'm going to go all the way the other way and make this in your face adult film to show that I am not that girl on Saved by the Bell. Like, that is not me, you know, and I feel that comes through on the screen too much like you are trying mm -hmm. too hard you know um and i get that the character's supposed to be trying hard you know in the beginning but like it feels like that all the way through mm -hmm. she eventually gets the job well she gets the audition anyway and the audition itself i gotta say that reminded me of show business really now i've done very little live theater i've mostly worked in film and video but that whole like we got 10 people, you're getting cut, you're getting cut, you're getting cut, you're getting cut. I have seen that happen. It is brutal. That part seemed real to me. Yeah, I would say 
I found myself thinking about the Netflix show Glow a lot while watching this and thinking about how many other kinds of shows have tried to capture that cutthroat dynamic of women who are trying to be the star or just trying to carve out a career and doing anything for money, even if it's not something they feel comfortable with. And I liked Glow so much better in terms of the dynamic between the women, in terms of making the women seem like real believable individual people that I wanted to cheer for. Showgirls, it seemed like you got a little bit of this cat fight kind of stuff that was happening and a little bit of the sense of the cutthroat, but none of the characters are fleshed out. And I mean, some of that's just the difference between a multi-season TV show and a feature film. But still, if you like this kind of setup, I, I recommend Glow so much more. <laughs> oh man, me too. I love that show. I'm so sad that they canceled it. Okay. I'm going to start at the top and we'll go downhill through some of the sex scenes. I think that the best, most erotic scene that I actually liked, I actually thought was kind of hot, was not a sex scene at all. It was the dance scene. The lap dance? Not the lap dance with uh, Kyle McLaughlin and Gina Gershon's character watching. I'm talking about the dance when she goes home mm. with... James. With James. Yes, First of all, I'm a huge Prince fan. We just talked about Prince. The uh, Ripa Gada Zippa, a Prince song you can't hear anywhere except on this soundtrack. Like he didn't release it, I don't think, as a single or anything like that. Great tune. And then their dance I found very sensual and hot. And that wasn't even a sex scene. That was just the dance scene, although it's practically a sex scene with clothes on. Right. That I really liked. Yeah. And then... We get a pool sex scene later on. And again, do not do this. Do not do this. Pools are terrible places for sex and they should not put them in films. It's just a bad idea. People will try this. They only work in movies. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe from now on, like every time we get sex in a pool, it's it's like like a, a point two on the shark meter. Like, can we <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, depending on the guy, depending on the guy, point right. two on the shark meter. <laughs> okay, well, we can do that. We're running out of time, so we're going to have to tackle the rape scene. Now, I mentioned leaving Las Vegas earlier, which had one of the most brutal, hard to stomach gang rape scenes in a movie I've ever seen with Elizabeth Shue. And that came out the same year. Again, the dark side of Vegas. But I don't know this rape scene. Like when we were talking about how rapey basic instinct was, not even in the same ballpark. Like, this was hard to watch. Yes. Hard to watch. Like, this was really bad. Yeah, for me, this scene is the the defining, like, this film is not a satire. Right. No matter how much Verhoeven might have wanted to say they had that plan to, like, make a satirical commentary about the Las Vegas world... This scene is very clearly, there is nothing satirical about it. There's nothing satirical about the setup. I don't think there's even really anything satirical about the quote-unquote revenge that Nomi gets on her friend's behalf afterwards. Like, this is where satire ends. And one of the most troubling 
pieces of this, in my opinion, is I did a quick Google just trying to find some research about how this scene was filmed, whether Gina Rivera had any reservations about it. And if you Google showgirls rape scene, unfortunately, you get about a dozen websites in which this scene is listed on porn sites as an opportunity to watch a black woman being raped. Oh my gosh. And that to me is like, that's what makes this absolutely inexcusable in this film is if Verhoeven is trying to say he's trying to make a commentary about how women are, are mistreated in this industry, filming something that was this exploitative and, and setting it up in this way and, and, and the building a plot around it where, the rape of a black woman is used in order in order to further the character arc of of another white character all of this is is pretty gross um jean rivera so i did actually find an article eventually uh, <laughs> that that talks about her reaction to the to the scene and jean rivera said that she agreed to do it because she was hoping that other young women would see this scene and think twice before they go into a room with some guy they don't know. Um, and that it would somehow prevent this from happening to other people. I, I think that that that's very optimistic for her to feel that way. And I definitely, you know, I, her, her intention is, is very noble. I don't think Paul Verhoeven had that same thought with this scene and he was very careless and, and uh, should should not have gone as far as he did. Yeah, it's it's a gut punch. Like it's really hard right. to watch. And and the the thing is, that would work if the movie had a dark tone like Black Swan. But the rest of the film is glitzy and glamorous and stuff like that. So like to throw that in is like that just derailed the film for me like as bad as it was before it was bad in a cute way this made it bad in a bad way like this is yeah yeah it mm, i i felt like that scene was completely unnecessary it 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 really upset me you know for a couple of reasons um one obviously it's a rape scene but to just the extra kick in the pants was this was a guy that that this character was look looking forward to meeting had a poster of him on her wall. Um, and whenever I see scenes like that, um, like most women, I'm a survivor. And um, so when I see scenes like that, it's an extra gut punch for me. But also just thinking about the after effects. Like when she goes home, she's going to see that poster on her wall. And then on top of that, the main character up and leaves town. So she doesn't even have her best friend there to comfort her when she gets out of the hospital or to, you know, clean up her apartment or rip that poster down or whatever. Like, I felt like they, you know, if they were going to put that scene in there, I feel like they should have done more with it instead of saying, okay, now we're going to end the movie. Yeah, she got just irresponsible. She got revenge for her, but it was kind of like a half-assed revenge, you know. It wasn't even on all the guys, just the one dude. Just the one dude. And then she leaves town. And I'm like, that's not a way to support a friend, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I'm glad you brought up the quote unquote revenge, because one of the things that bothers me the most about Verhoeven's approach to this whole sub arc is the filming of the rape scene is very graphic and intense. And you see a lot more than you want to. In the scene when Nomi shows up to kick Andre's ass, we get 
a couple kicks to the face, and then a lot of it is looking at Nomi, and we are not seeing the violence acted on this guy. And so what bothers me is that we don't get parody in the exploitation. And also, like, it's not real revenge. Like, you know, I wanted to see a lot more happen to this guy than oh, him yeah. just getting beat up. So yeah. so it's it's you don't get parody there. And and then furthermore, the camera shies away from from watching the violence done on this guy in a way it doesn't shy away from watching it being done to Molly. And that pissed me off. Yeah, that pissed me off, too. And it also pissed me off that the other characters didn't really want to do anything about it. So, you know, Nomi felt like she had to do something about it. I get the whole nobody wanted to do anything about it. In fact, there's a line where Kyle McLaughlin's character says, you know, oh, he's part of our industry. He's in a different place. He, he you know, he's gone on. We're going to we're going to keep him. Yeah, I my opinion is that the the plot part of it is, I mean, I don't I, I kind of wish that they had written it so that it happens to know me. Like, I feel like that would have been a stronger film than having it happen to her friend and and less problematic in the sense that her black best friend character also has to be victimized in this way, I think is is problematic. But what what I would say is I recommend that everybody go watch Elle, which is one of Verhoeven's recent films, and it deals very directly with rape revenge as as like the primary focus of the film. And it is very well done. In a way, like, this is badly done, but whatever lessons he needed to learn <laughs> after screwing up with Showgirls, he he learned them before making Elle. And, and if you wanted to see, you know, how that director's evolved in terms of the treatment of this this type of story, um, Elle, Elle is actually, I think, very thoughtful. Why do you think it was Molly and not Nomi that they had this rape because it would have made more sense to make it know me, you know? I wondered. So the moment like Andre grabs her ass and says like, you should call me sometime. And then immediately after that, Nomi's like, let me introduce you to my friend. Seconds after this guy has clearly been like a total creep. And you can see on Nomi's face, like this kind of sense of horror. And then she offers up her friend, like, like a lamb to the slaughter to this guy and I wondered whether, I, I don't know if the film carries this off, but I got the sense that Nomi did it on purpose, knowing this could happen. And the film, I like, you know, I think she maybe feels remorse for it. But in that moment, I wondered whether, whether part, part of the reason why it's Nomi, why it's not Nomi is because we get to see this side of Nomi that she's going to be, she's not just going to betray her mentor and, you know, wreck the career of the woman in front of her in order to get ahead. She's also like just cruel generally to anybody who opposes her or judges her. And, and that we're coming into this scene right after Molly has sort of said like, that was really screwed up that you, you know, hurt somebody else in order to get ahead. And right after that, that's when Nomi betrays yeah. her friend. That that mm -hmm. makes sense. Okay, so we're going to have to get past that. When it comes down to it, it never, I don't know, it never really recovers for me for that. She eventually pushes Crystal down the stairs, becomes the main attraction star herself. But after this rape scene incident and her revenge, she splits town. 
end of the film, she ends up hitchhiking, getting in a truck with the same guy who she hitchhiked in with. This was like the coincidence was just too much. But by then, like there were so many bridges too far in this movie that I was just like, of course, it's the same guy, you know? Yeah. And then they have this comic <laughs> ending where they're swerving off the road and all that. And I'm just like, did you guys just give up? At what point did you just give up on this film? You know, <laughs> Well, supposedly halfway through making the film, they said, oh, there's going to be a sequel where she goes to Los Angeles and tries to make it in Hollywood. And so I think they they already knew at that point, like, oh, let's let's have the, the sign L.A. 200 miles. And they were setting up a sequel, which I don't think the sequel got made. There was a spinoff about Penny, which... Please, God, Eric, don't make us watch. <laughs> yeah, please. Like, this was... Huh, taking notes, Penny. Spin off. <laughs> um, so, a couple little bits of trivia here. Pamela Anderson actually is in this film. She is in a party scene. As a singer. It's yep. one of those blink and you miss it cameos. I just noticed that right after Showgirls, like the next year, Demi Moore was in Striptease. <laughs> Which also won a Razzie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Things went really badly. Like, and we can lay all this at the feet of Basic Instinct. Yeah. Thanks a lot. So let's see if Paul Verhoeven can redeem himself in the future. I think that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, or if you think we got something wrong about Showgirls, because I know I have friends that love this movie. Please write to us at GC8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. And explain to me what the hell we missed about this film. <laughs> Why is this a cult classic? There are parts that are bad in a good way, but there's a lot of parts that are bad in a bad way. It is not a film I look forward to revisiting. I probably will never watch this film again. Same. I might never watch Leaving Las Vegas again either, but it was a good film about the dark side of Vegas that came out around the same time. This was not. All right. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. And this is Johanna. Signing off. Okay, pardon me one second. I have to go rescue my cat. Yeah, I kept seeing you look over there. <laughs>